everyone. It's almost the end of the year. Um, and I just thought that actually might be a good uh, start of the Christmas song. But today is the second episode of the Geneva Dell podcast. Uh, we have so much to discuss, uh, so much to reflect about and wrap up, specifically as well what happened in the dialect this year. But today we'll also ask, who writes the rules for the security of digital products? Hundreds of apps, smart devices. Who defines how a data must be protected? And if there's anyone who's expected to do so or actually does so already. Some of you might think how simple these questions are and you might be right, but is it really that simple in practice? As I quickly remind that Geneva Dialect is an international process and a global conversation that gathers uh, representatives from the industry, civil society, academia, and technical community from around the world to discuss specifically all these topics. Established by the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs and led by DIPA, with support of the Republican State of Geneva, Central for Digital Trust, Swiss Common UBS, the dialogue discusses which roles and responsibilities different NOSA stakeholders might have to ensure the security and stability in cyberspace. This year in particular, over 50 experts and organizations discussed the implementation of the cyber norms and contributed to the development of the first Geneva Manual, the comprehensive guidance which documents what challenges, opportunities, but also good practices all of these non state stakeholders might have to implement the norms that have been agreed upon and endorsed by all UN member states. My name is Anastasia Kozakova. I'm Cyber Diplomacy Knowledge Fellow at Diplom, and I'm super happy to be the person who will ask all the million dollar questions to our wonderful expert. So today we're happy to have with us uh, Sinjan Teo, Vice President of Advisory at Unsigned Info Security, the company that is a very lone uh, and a good friend of the Geneva Dialog. Uh, hello, Exi, and welcome to, to the podcast. I am very happy to be here. So I've, I've framed a little bit the topic of today's conversation. Um, we tend to say that digital connected products inevitably contain vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities that is as a result of the human work and humans may make mistakes. So this is something that normal and that exists in the industry. However, when the vulnerabilities do pose security risks to users, I wonder who has the power or even obligation to minimize those risks? Is it industry, is it governments? And I bet you will probably ask first with the industry, so if that's industry should come first, what steps should the industry uh, take to develop more secure products? What particular do we as a users expect from companies to do? I think uh, before I answer the role of the industry in the establishing of cybersecurity in the products and services, um, I think because of the level of interconnectedness of the uh, digital services and products uh, and the dependencies that exist between uh, producers, the intermediaries, and then the final consumers, um, there must be a sense of the shared responsibility model um, to be able to then lay out kind of the roles and responsibilities as well as expectations and requirements for each relevant stakeholder. And I think the Geneva Manual attempts um, to be able to lay that out uh, for everyone uh, in the larger society. Now, when we pay attention towards the industry, 
um, clearly as the manufacturer or the producer of a particular product or service, it is an imperative um, to consider the trustworthiness and therefore the attractiveness of the product or service um, to the consumer. And using the, the um, domain or theme of trust um, is then connected towards the reputation of the company. Um, and when we put those uh, contexts together, uh, it is one significant motivation uh, for the industry to be able to do what is right and therefore what is trustworthy. Now, to bring a bit more depth into um, the challenges that exist in the industry when it comes towards uh, pushing for cybersecurity, we need to have an understanding that there are the more well-resourced organizations, bigger companies, and then there are the less well-resourced, for example, uh, startups, small, medium enterprises that also exist. Now, the solution for the more well-resourced and uh, larger organizations uh, is essentially to organize themselves, be able to tap on the competencies that exist within the organization, to be able to then, say, implement um, very uh, well-established industry good practices, for example, security by design, security by default, ensuring secure development life cycles as uh, practices are actually implemented, um, and if they are actually providing services of which they are hosting themselves, um, practice zero trust architecture principles and so on. So those are things that uh, well-resourced and mature organizations, which are manufacturers, for example, can definitely adapt, uh, adopt for themselves uh, and thereby pushing forth a more trustworthy uh, product space. Now, when we turn towards the less well-resourced uh, representatives of the industry, um, therein lies the challenge where, number one, um, they might not have the expertise and capacity to be able to establish cybersecurity uh, for their products and services. So therein lies uh, opportunity for larger ecosystem uh, support to come into play. Where, uh, for example, ensuring that there are easy access, um, knowledge-based uh, uplift tools as well as funding to be able to enable them uh, to move in that right direction. So that at some point in time when they become sizable and more well-resourced, um, they have the correct foundations to work on to be able to up uplift uh, that the cybersecurity of their products and services. Um, so I think that is one lens that I wear uh, when it comes towards the industry. I'll just touch a little bit on the consumer. Um, there is the very famous saying, which is, uh, you know, you put the support based on the money that you're willing to uh, invest in for a particular outcome, right? Uh, so put the dollar where you, uh, whatever your interest is. And so as a consumer, uh, one natural aspect is then to choose um, the more cyber-worthy solutions or uh, products and ser services uh, in contrast to those that are less. Uh, but this takes a particular discipline and an established set of requirements uh, to be uh, made known so that the demand is clearly established. Mm -hmm. 
I really like how you made actually the link to the concept of the trust and trustworthiness of the particular product. And I would definitely agree with you that consumers try to find, you know, the optimal balance while choosing the product. So you would just imagine the circle, the number of the factors, factors such as the cost, functionality, nice, great design, the brand, the power of the brand. I would really want to have that particular product and security. So I wonder how much actually security has this proportion in this, you know, in this pie, if we just imagine a pie chart. Well, this is this is a very tough and uh, subjective uh, question. Um, I like to think, being a cybersecurity practitioner, that it has a sufficient and significant uh, representation in the requirements. Um, to that, if we use general rule of thumb, it must be at least thirty three percent allocation of weight. Um, but I do know that it is challenging. Um, if we look towards mature markets. Um, and particularly putting a lens on government uh, procurement, uh, we tend to see that cybersecurity has at least a dedicated section of requirements to then say, I expect this service or product to meet these kinds of uh, controls and that uh, the services are also aligned to my, uh, for example, information uh, classification and treatment framework. Um, I think that's a positive direction that we would like to see uh, many more uh, government procurement and even uh, private procurements to actually adopt so that uh, cybersecurity is actually considered upfront in the procurement uh, and product life cycle until its demise, uh, meaning the, the, the disposal of a particular product or the termination of a particular service. Um, so that's how I'd answer that. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. Um, so we discussed the role of the industry, and uh, you mentioned a number of the approaches, security by design, security by default. We also in a dialogue discussed the importance of security uh, during the deployment of the products. And I wonder as well, uh, do the governments also sort of, are the governments also concerned about the security of digital products? And do they have a specific role which uh, both users and industry might have, you know, expect from them? I, I think um, it is natural for many uh, stakeholders in the ecosystem to want to see the government take a more leading role. Um, but I also recognize the challenges that uh, public policy makers and public policy influencers have in trying to understand the movement of technology. I think uh, drawing an example, the EU AI Act uh, has been quite a significant uh, positive direction move uh, from an EU initiative standpoint. Um, but connecting back to this, uh, this particular conversation, um, I think I mentioned that the government can make it uh, clearer to establish cybersecurity demands as a part of procurement process. So this connects back to my earlier point, which is you put your dollar where your interest is. And if cybersecurity is where you're interested, particularly because government uh, procurement, the volume, the uh, value, dollar value is significant, it moves the market in very material ways. And therefore, uh, other people doing uh, procurement of products and services will naturally 
uh, take reference from the government purchases. So, so that's one element and role that government plays. The other one, uh, which is an interesting development, uh, which we've seen uh, some jurisdictions actually take uh, adoption, and that is a voluntary cybersecurity labeling scheme. Uh, and many of which are actually established by uh, government agencies. Um, the keyword here is voluntary. And uh, I think there's some beauty in a voluntary scheme because it creates a peer pressure environment uh, for industry players to want to say, I want my product to be at this level of trustworthiness or at this level of um, demonstrated competency for cybersecurity controls um, so that it is a positive reflection of my brand value. It is a positive reflection of my products and services. Uh, and so that creates a peer pressure environment that uh, when everyone looks over the shoulder and it's like, okay, I'm, I, maybe I want to do better than my competitor. Um, so, so that's one environment. And I want to highlight a few jurisdictions that I'm very cognizant about. Um, Singapore um, started this uh, several years back. And we've also um, established mutual recognition to uh, Finland and Germany. I know in parallel that the UK and the US have also uh, started on their journey for cybersecurity labeling scheme. And uh, all these are very encouraging because uh, when we look at it, Singapore ultimately is a much smaller market uh, compared to the bigger uh, markets or, or uh, economies. Uh, and so whatever uh, we see from a Singapore market standpoint for our interests, uh, and when it starts uh, to be mutually recognized in larger economies, um, everyone stands to gain, uh, not just in the smaller economies, but also in the larger economies. Um, there is also, I'm aware of a movement uh, to push labeling schemes towards an ISO standard. Uh, and that further helps to encourage a common point of reference for every uh, jurisdiction that wants to uh, adopt such a scheme and move in a very positive and uh, aligned function, uh, fashion. So, so I think that's another role, uh, which is the establishing a scheme and that is publicly accessible for cybersecurity labeling uh, that encourages uh, not just for the industry to want to do better, but the for consumers to be able to take reference to say this product uh, by the labeling scheme is demonstrably better than the other. And I can then reflect against my budget and my requirements whether uh, I can afford better or I can afford uh, not so great, but has minimum requirements. So uh, that's another element uh, to consider. It's not just the government, but the consumers can also resonate accordingly. Agree. I think it it will definitely help to raise the security demand for consumers as well if they see more and more products labeled as secure um, on the market. Um, but I wonder, and thank you so much for giving the particular examples, an example of Singapore, but do the governments have this expertise um, to develop you know, the labeling security criteria, because I think that might be really difficult to do so if you also look at the really diverse sectors of the products where they develop. 
there, therein lies the opportunity, and I, I've seen demonstrated examples uh, where public par- uh, public-private partnership actually exists. Uh, first and foremost, uh, remember I said that while the government agencies are establishing the voluntary labelling scheme, there is now a separate movement, but an aligned movement to go towards industry standards, uh, and that's uh, under the ISO. Um, and if we're, for those of us that are familiar with the ISO uh, standards development process, uh, it takes public consultation, it takes expert consultation to be able to form those standards. Um, the other thing that I've seen um, very positively, so uh, maybe it's not necessarily a government body, but an international association, for example, the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, they are laying out guidelines uh, which um, healthcare uh, regulators can then adopt to be placed into their own regulations in their respective jurisdiction. Um, and it is that translative effect, which is also the goal of the Geneva Dialogue, where we lay out the, uh, some of the context of the norms. We hope that uh, certain jurisdictions and governments uh, can translate that and be implemented into their own re- legislature. And therein, uh, draws the benefit of experts and different perspectives to be incorporated uh, into public policy, into legislation, uh, so that it is more meaningfully uh, laid out. And therein, we don't need to burden uh, governments uh, and public policy owners to be perfect in understanding the full context of the technical challenges, but really relying on the larger ecosystem uh, and a, a larger pool of uh, stakeholders to be able to share their perspectives and uh, insights. So, so I think it is not binary that we say, okay, just because the government is the administrator uh, of such schemes or legislature, that they are seen to be independent and uh, alone in the process. Uh, there are now public consultation uh, approaches, which many jurisdictions are leveraging off um, to be able to get there. So I, I, I don't think uh, it's a lone effort for the governments to play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in this regard, I think we can uh, map one more expectation from the industry to be part of those efforts from the governments to also stimulate the market and advise or contribute with the expertise. Um, and you very good that you also mentioned the norms and I would like to uh, touch on them a little bit uh, later, but now a couple of more questions about the public-private partnership, specifically in ASEAN region and also in Singapore. This week, uh, actually last week, there's been a week of the Open Data Worker Group, the process where all states discuss the implementation of the norms that you mentioned and other parts of the normative framework. Um, and Singapore, um, I think one of the leading countries in ASEAN mentioned a number of the efforts that all the member states do to implement this at the um, ASEAN level. And the regulation is not always sort of, as you said, the binary answer. There might be more creative approaches to enhance the security of digital products to minimize the risks. Um, maybe you could give a little bit more examples how actually this works in, in ASEAN region, comparing to what we see currently in Europe, with definitely more interest going for the tougher regulation and regulating a number of the products. Um, mm. And if you know what are the challenges, particularly given the specifics of the ASEAN economies, you could uh, share with us. 
Sure. Um, I do not claim that I'm an expert, but uh, clearly I live in the ASEAN region. Um, and for for those of us that are aware or exposed to the ASEAN region, it is a non-homogeneous uh, region. Um, much more complex uh, than EU in the sense that we have a lot more uh, uh, creed, race, religion representations in this uh, region. Uh, we also have economies of various sizes, uh, many of which are in the developing phases of uh, of maturity uh, as countries by themselves. Um, and so because of cultural differences, because of economic um how do we put it, characteristics. Uh, some may be more ag agriculturally aligned. Some might, may be more commodity-centric. Some may be more services-oriented. Uh, 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 some are more manufacturing. Some are more uh, service-oriented uh, economies. So when there's such great diversity uh, and range of maturity in, in a region, um, the challenges in laying out uh, jurisdiction becomes manifold. Um, we also can see in this region that there are two different types of legislation, uh, which generally is put into two buckets or hybrids between. Uh, you have the common law jurisdiction style, like for example, Singapore and uh, Malaysia. And then you have the more civil law jurisdiction, uh, which is, you know, like uh, even Singapore has some hybrid of that. The penal code is more written like a civil civil uh, legislature. But uh, when there's such a uh, variety of legislature, then the form and uh, means in which such legislature can be uh, laid out uh, goes through a lot more deliberation uh, to, to, to realize into implemented effect. So, so that's one set of challenges and it's just down to the characteristics of the region. Um, the second thing is that uh, due to the size of the economies and the maturity of uh, awareness and understanding of uh, cybersecurity, um, different markets will place different levels of significance of cybersecurity in products and services. Uh, in more emerging and developing markets, um, cybersecurity is more of a luxury um, because they are chasing after functional and material growth. Um, so, having the ability to gain access to emerging capabilities and features might be of top priority to them as compared to, you know, I want a service that is uh, uh, first and foremost uh, secure before I look at the function. Kind of first world problems versus, you know, the base uh, requirements and need uh, for growth. So, so cybersecurity in the emerging and uh, developing markets tend to become uh, good to have rather than a must-have. But for more mature markets, then it is uh, must be considered. And then you will hear language such as uh, risk assessments, risk management, and all that come into play before it becomes realized. Now, the other challenge that exists and is connected to the characteristics of the region is then um, there's, a reasonable, that there's quite a wide variety of the level of education and awareness of cybersecurity which therein lies uh, the context about how aware are they about the international movements, uh, whether the availability of the cyber norms and what does it really mean for them? Um, so, so when that range exists, 
um, you will see uh, more uh, aware as well as more um, educated uh, economies take a bit of a lead in terms of implementing that. And uh, Singapore is one of those examples in ASEAN, but there are many other uh, countries in ASEAN that are also taking uh, leading steps towards uh, implementation of cyber norms. Now, in the larger region, um, kind of there's the East versus the West being uh, using EU as an example. Um, the, the, as an uh, Asian-centric uh, uh, region, there is more uh, collaboration and uh, group growth mindset uh, that exists there. And so there is more interest to then say, let's lay out the rules of the road, the uh, principles of uh, addressing whatever that is. And in this case, it will be cybersecurity norms. Um, rather than to be very focused on laying out legislature as the first response. Now, clearly, and it is also remarkable, when we look towards uh, EU, there is a higher uh, drive towards making sure that uh, the rules of the road is not just principles, but um, actually law, right? Uh, and the AI law uh, for EU, is which is really fresh off the the last few weeks uh, from this podcast um, is a remarkable uh, achievement for the EU, European Union. Um, but you will also see that many other uh, jurisdictions in the world are considering things like uh, open frameworks, open standards uh, and guidelines to be able to uh, lay out principles for organizations and even nations to consider adoption of such um technologies um so that there are significant contrasts that exist and it's not unique to say uh, ASEAN versus the European Union um but I think the world has enough space uh for many different models to play um just calling out these two uh regions is uh, how I would lay out these characteristics that I've observed yeah and I think it's a beauty as well of ASEAN um to combine different economies which uh, grow at a different pace and actually maybe if there's a stronger player may help to play with a less mature approach and the skills to grow faster hopefully and I think that's really great that um there are such efforts currently to promote this more homogeneous knowledge in terms of the cybersecurity and approach approaches to tackle the challenges in uh, the associated with vulnerabilities in a number of the products and number of the ICTs that different sectors from critical to less critical rely on these days. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, as a someone who comes from the private sector, we spoke about the norms um, that the countries uh, currently try to implement, and I think we will find many examples how country already implemented them. But for these frameworks, to genuinely make a tangible impact, you as a representative of the private sector, what do you believe is really needed for, for this? I, I think it goes back to um, organization and brand value alignment. Um, if an organization can connect the dots the way I expressed earlier that 
if I align my pro uh, products and solutions towards uh, cybersecurity norms and therefore lead towards a trustworthiness of my products and services as well as my company's reputation associated to this uh, good feelings, right, or goodwill, um, then I'm in an enlightened state. And if I'm in that enlightened state, it is a non-conversation that I want to do what is right. Now, there will be, of course, organizations that are maybe very focused on um, the financials and the business growth and all that kind of thing, um, where they might not see these elements come into play. Um, I draw a very, uh, I draw an analogy uh, towards this. Um, corporate uh, social responsibility uh, was something that many organizations did not see as uh, brand value adding or business value adding. Uh, and they did not see uh, that there was return on investments coming from having employees do uh, things outside of work um, just for goodwill. Uh, but we have come so far uh, over the years. Now the conversation has shifted to you know sustainability, um, maintaining that uh, uh, targets such as uh, zero carbon emissions and so on and so forth. So I think cybersecurity has that opportunity to actually move in that same direction for the business leaders uh, and similarly public policy uh, makers and influencers to then understand that you know cybersecurity has an opportunity to move in that fashion uh, and be able to um, generate value uh, without necessarily leading to an immediate ROI. Uh, it is something for the greater good. Uh, and and I, I emphasize this perspective mainly because um, many of the impacts that we see today, and particular to the two norms that we are we have written in the Geneva Manual, uh, the current edition, is first and foremost vulnerability management and next uh, supply chain risk management. Now, many of the vulnerabilities today do not exist uniquely to one organization, but because of a particular product or service being widely used and interconnected or interdependent, the supply chain implications become beyond calculation. Uh, it is very widespread. So if you take it that, you know, I just have one hole to plug and then I put my finger there to plug that hole, you might very quickly run out of fingers. Uh, and you might need to leverage of uh, what we call collective defense uh, approaches, leveraging the community to really support and lean on one another to be able to do what is right and what is beneficial for everyone. So, so these are some of the um, balancing acts that exist that we need to uh, take dependence on. Uh, and I know there is a bit of uh, optimism and idealism that comes into play when I say this, but I think we are better and stronger together rather than uh, individually. So, so that's kind of how the frame my response was this question. Mm -hmm. Definitely would say that it's very, um, gives a lot of hopes and it gives a lot of optimism, but I do think that it actually makes sense if it's not linear, if you invest something in cybersecurity that will actually give you sort of return on investment. Um, you may 
place the vulnerability that might be so critical to you that might actually disrupt lots of your operations. Um, and you could actually invest so much before into cybersecurity. So you 100% protected from such events. But on the other hand, if you continuously uh, improve the cybersecurity of your organization and try to also show this and um, raise the same interest across your suppliers, across your partners and stakeholders and customers, I think it's really the long-term, but it's really important goal that um, we definitely should speak more about. Um, mm. So my first, my the other question I wanted to ask about the areas where both governments, um, cybersecurity agencies that work in this field that uh, do the same thing, and industries, the areas where the interests might actually be contradictory, might be in conflict. Um, in particular, maybe in the areas that we just uh, mentioned within Geneva Manual related to supply chain security and vulnerability, responsible vulnerability disclosure. So what do you think about those areas and where you see this really the conflict that actually still creates more risks than security? I, I think the conflict and tensions that exist uh, sometimes is, is due to um, a lack of deeper understanding of uh, one another's interests. Now, uh, in general sense, anybody and everybody would want to be uh, first to understand and be aware of what's happening in the environment, right? So there's this constant struggle to say, who is the first person? Um, we know of jurisdictions uh, that have now written into law to then say that um, if you are an organization that operates in my uh, in my uh, jurisdiction or country, um, and you find a vulnerability, you need to report to me, and and the word comes out first, right? Uh, before uh, any other such communications take place. Now, when this first as the keyword that comes out, um. It is natural for those people who haven't established this, I also want it first, uh, to then say, oh, so I'm going to be the second party, the third party, the nth party that is going to be made aware of uh, when a vulnerability is discovered. So I will be caught on the back foot. Um, what is something that uh, I now recommend my clients to consider is that... Um, why don't you not consider who is first and who is next and who is later? Uh, if you know that it is a regulator that you're exposed to, why not responsibly share similar information across the board? So no one is first other than the internet speed. You know, I'm one millisecond faster than another person, but it lands at the mailbox or it lands at the call centers of the respective regulators uh, at nearly the same time. Uh, that eases off some of the pressures uh, that exist. Now, uh, if we think about certain jurisdictions that are a bit more controlling in nature, uh, then there might be other sense of pressure that exists for business leaders, uh, mainly because they might think, if I don't do this and I really give a higher weightage of uh, preference uh, towards my home regulator, 
uh, what does it mean to me? Will I go to jail? Will I get penalty? Will I do? Uh, will I get uh, some form of uh, negative ramification? Um, and I guess these uh, business leaders operating in such jurisdictions will clearly have to weigh out uh, the benefits and the trade-offs that they are facing. But I'm also very co uh, cognizant that many businesses today do not only operate in one market. And so uh, maybe being as transparent as possible uh, is the correct way to do so. And of course, in the Geneva Manual, we laid out certain uh, principles for responsible vulnerability disclosure. Um, the challenge that exists right now when we look towards uh, responsible uh, vulnerability disclosure is that there are so many industry good practices that exist. Uh, and every industry player is then forced to establish a version of a responsible uh, vulnerability disclosure framework uh, that's the first part. The second part is, uh, let's say, for example, uh, it's the research, the, the threat and vulnerability researchers. Um, when they are trying to respond to a particular product vendor, uh, it will be very different from vendor A to vendor B because they will all have their different uh, practices. Unfortunately, there's no one unified approach uh, towards doing that. Um it is trivial for us to talk about, okay, the forms are different. Um, whether I send by email, I enter a web form, uh, that is the trivial piece. But the data that is collected, the expected level of interaction and the expected uh, investment of resource to be able to address a particular regulator or even a manufacturer's uh, need to uncover the details of a vulnerability um, Sometimes it's very complex. The next part is also the liability to the individual or the organizations. Uh, sometimes it's non-trivial to then just say, oh, uh, it is to this individual, let's say I'm I'm the researcher. Um, if I have only the, got the competency to chance upon the vulnerability, and I actually have got no technical expertise beyond that, um, but the person I'm reporting to expects me to fulfill a whole range of details then how do we actually do that uh, meaningfully? So, so some of these parts needs to be worked out. And for the responding uh, organizations, whether that be a regulator or a manufacturer, uh, they also need to kind of lay out uh, categories of uh, people that are reporting to them so that they know how to respond accordingly. There's no one-size-fits-all uh, in this responsible vulnerability disclosure process. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope I answered the question. I think it's actually really important aspect is about the trade-offs. And I think if uh, they indeed it would be more transparency and more at least understanding across different actors involved, whether that's uh, disclosure of vulnerabilities or overall, um, let's say, uh, security, security of the products, how to ensure that you as a company and your suppliers um, adhere to the same standards. It's really important to understand all of these trade-offs and maybe that would be easier for different actors to manage different expectations. I assume that the trade-offs of the company is really much, very much might be different from the small and medium company that is a supplier, a part of the supply chain of this, um, of this organization. So I think that, yeah, that's definitely important. 
I wanted to also probably ask the last question and focus uh, zooming to the end users. So the end users, we discussed that definitely uh, for them, there's a number of the factors also to consider while purchasing digital products. And there's a, a lot to do to increase the security demand from them. But overall, what do you think that given that today's technological competition, the political tensions, uh, the still existing fragmentation across jurisdictions, the different approaches across industries to tackle security, approach to security. What implications does all of this have for the end users? What are we as a users left with in this regard? Are you more optimistic or pessimistic? Also being in the shoes of the user, do you see um, an average jurisdictions, be it a mature, the less mature, the end user, how much actually the end user care about the cybersecurity, purchasing the smart products and applications? I, I, I like to frame my response this way. Uh, it is a benefit that right now, um, we are able to buy products and services across the globe. So, so gone are the days where we can only buy the products and services immediate to the local market that we have direct access to. Um, and, and therein lies the beauty of the global supply chain. If, uh, regardless of whether I'm a mature end user or an ignorant end user, um, if the larger momentum exists to go in a positive direction, um, as an example, we call uh, Apple products as uh, maybe having a minimum level of cybersecurity. And of course, they market that they are very privacy focused and so on. Um, as a average or even a ignorant user, just because of the brand attractiveness, I might aspire and uh, work towards buying their products. And therein, I gain the benefit that maybe more mature uh, consumers have already asked for, which is I want better security. I want to ensure that my privacy is upheld. I want the opportunity to not allow, let's say, uh, surveillance uh, by my own jurisdiction and, and resident uh, government. Um, so, so that is a very important perspective of uplift for the uh, low maturity and low awareness uh, end user. Now, for the more enlightened, uh, so-called average and above uh, end users, if they are having access, uh, and, and this, my point being going towards transparency, right? If they have access to awareness that a particular solution or product um, has a higher level of cybersecurity as compared to the others, uh, borrowing the example, which is the cybersecurity labeling scheme, many of which are voluntary in nature, um, I am now put into a position of informed decision-making to then say, will I spend my $1 on this product, which claims for better cybersecurity? It may not have all the features, um, but I think I put a bit more focus on cybersecurity. Versus, uh, I nonetheless just want to prioritize on uh, functionality, and I will allocate my dollars that way. But I'm aware that maybe this solution has got zero, if not uh, uh, very low cybersecurity uh, controls in place. 
I am put into a position to make that choice because of the level of transparency and information that's made available to me. So um, two key shifts that I wanted to highlight. Number one, uh, if general consumers are leaning towards a better space, and when I say better, a more cyber secure set of solutions, services, and products, um, the simpleton, the less aware, less mature end users may tend to get ben gain benefits just by following suit, following the larger momentum. Now, for the more uh, mature ones, at least if there's transparency, at least if they are made, uh, if the information is made available so that they can access to make informed decision making in their procurement, um, that is already a key benefit. Uh, and that will allow them to put their dollar where they find more uh, importance is. Um, and hopefully, with these two trusts in line, 80-20 uh, rule, we will see 80% uh, of the direction and trajectory going towards a more cyber secure space, uh, particularly for consumers buying uh, products and services that eventually form the digital attack surface, uh, whether for themselves, the organizations that they work with, uh, or the greater uh, jurisdiction and countries that they belong to. Thank you very much. I agree with you. That makes sense. Um, I also did like how you called the more aware users as enlightened users. It's a really the good title. Um, so to end today's conversation, very short episode. Um, and maybe I'll ask uh, again the same question that I framed at the very beginning. And I, uh, if possible, please um, answer with a very short answer, sort of the tweet-like or X-like uh, answer. So who writes the rules for the security of digital products today? Everyone has a role to play and everyone can write these uh, responsibilities together. Thank you very much, Xi. Um, thanks a lot for addressing so skillfully all my million dollar questions today. Um, I hope our listeners also enjoyed our episode as well. Um, we will continue the conversation with the industry experts, experts coming from cyber diplomacy, technical community, civil society to discuss the impacts of the security for, for users, for all of us in, that, in cyberspace. Thanks a lot and see you soon. Mm -hmm.